God wants us to know him. As he's revealed himself to us, uh, he has increasingly made himself more and more clear. We were looking at Hebrews 1 this morning and saw how though he had spoken to us in many ways in the past, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. He wants us to know him through his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's open our Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in which the Apostle John explains to us that Jesus was sent to be the explanation of God to us, that God wants us to understand his love for us and his desire to have relationship with us. I'm reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Drop down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. If you think of the ways in which God made himself known through creation, we can see the beauty, the intricacy, the quality, the insight, the direction of what God is like in nature itself. Within us, he has placed a conscience, a moral guide that tells us that we have failed God, we have broken even our own standards. As he began to reveal himself to individuals, to walk with them, to talk to him, to send, to talk to them, uh, to send prophets to them, to announce to them his word, as he sent them great leaders to help them uh, follow after him. In these days, in the New Testament era, in the era in which he replaces the old covenant of the Mosaic Law with the new covenant, he sends to us what he considers to be his best and perfect revelation to us, that is his son. John already has the other three gospels available to him, and as he writes, he writes from a more theological perspective, and rather than beginning with uh, the birth of the child, he begins with a theological treatise that forms an outline of the rest of his book. He explains 
that God wants us to know him through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. If we go back to the beginning itself, if we go back to the beginning of time, Jesus Christ, God's son, was already in existence. John picks a particularly interesting word, logos, meaning word emphasizing that Jesus has come to communicate with us. He has come to explain to us what God is like. He has become the personalization of God's revelation to us. So he writes, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. Notice, that this word is already in existence in the beginning, not that he came into existence in the beginning. He was already existing. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Notice he doesn't say he was a God. He doesn't say he is merely divine. He says he is God himself, yet He's also separate from, but in eternal fellowship with God. He exists eternally. He is with the one we would consider to be the Father. He is God in the sense that he shares that which is divine, that which is the essence, the substance of God himself, yet as a separate individual within the Godhead. He is with God. He was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. He's not a creature. He does not have a beginning. He's been in eternal relationship with the Father. In fact, as we read on, we come to understand that he is involved in creation. Verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This means that the second person of the Trinity, described here as the Word, has always been in relationship with the Father, not a creature, not having a beginning, and that the Word has been the agent of creation in relation with the Father and the Spirit. Creation reveals God, and through creation, we know God, but we know him even more intimately through his son, the agent of creation. Borrowing from one of Paul's epistles regarding the person of Christ and his creation, we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, meaning that nothing of that which is God himself is missing from the person Jesus Christ, even as he has added to his humanity, added to his deity, humanity, so that he has become the God-man. All of that which is God, the fullness of deity, dwells in the person of Jesus Christ, in bodily form. Or in Colossians 1.16, he writes, For by him all things were created, 
both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Because all of creation itself will be ruled on behalf of the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, by the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Through his Son, he has made all things, and these exist for him so that we will understand God's creative power, God's goodness, and God's love that he has set upon us. Notice we read in John chapter 1, verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Both our physical life and our spiritual life comes to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Not only was he the agent of the creation so that we come from his creative power, but he also is the one who gives us relationship with God. We, having fallen, have broken fellowship with God and broken relationship with him, and the Son makes it possible for us to have spiritual life, spiritual relationship with God the Father. In him is life, and this life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, speaking of the ignorance and the way in which our world obscures our understanding of God. But just like a penetrating light breaks through the darkness and illuminates, so the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, and the person of Jesus Christ has dispelled both physical darkness and spiritual darkness, even the darkness in our heart and even the blindness that we have to understanding God. It's a pure, penetrating, and revelatory light that overpowers darkness and causes us to be able to see and understand God himself through the person of Jesus Christ. This darkness had held us in bondage to death. This darkness had made us ignorant. It had entrapped us in sin. It had separated us from God. But Jesus Christ comes to dispel this darkness, and the darkness did not have the power to hold it back. Verse 14, And the word, that is the communication of God through the person of his Son, the word became flesh. Notice that this is something that is added to him, something that he did not have before. God himself and the person of the Son added to himself in time, at a particular point in time, humanity. He added to himself humanness so that he became the God-man, both God and man at the same time. And yet he was protected from sin in this regard. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He was protected from inheriting our sinful state before God and the nature that confines us in rebellion against God by the manner of his birth. This birth was actually predicted in the Old Testament. And the protection from sin was predicted by the Old Testament. We normally read these kinds of verses at Christmas time, at the time when we celebrate Jesus' birth. But listen to the theology that is described here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, meaning that the plan is for all of creation to belong to him and for him to rule righteously over all of creation in his kingdom. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He is God come in the flesh, the one who comes with wisdom, the one who possesses the wonders of the Godhead, the one who counsels us, the one who, and this is not a confusion of the persons within the Godhead, is like a father to us eternally. He is the one who is the prince of peace, the one who brings peace to us. And so as predicted in Isaiah 9, 6, we are going to have God given to us as a child. As this came about, we read, for example, in the Gospels, take Luke 1.35 as an example, in which the angel appears to Mary saying, this is how it will happen. This is how this will be fulfilled. This is how God will enter the human race. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child, the sinless child, the, sin, the child who has no connection with us regarding sin, but in every way is like us without sin. If you wonder, can that be a true human? That's the way God created Adam without sin, a genuine human being. He is a holy child, and he will be called the Son of God. He receives his humanity from Mary. He receives his deity from the Holy Spirit. He is the holy child, the child that was predicted, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace, the son of God. Joseph was not actually his father. He was his adoptive father, a human father, but not actually biologically his father. Matthew 1.16 clearly says to us, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom, that's feminine singular, referring only to Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah, that is, our promised Savior and King. He is saying, I am communicating with you personally, intimately, 
in my son. I want you to know me through my son, Jesus Christ. That's why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he reveals even God's glory to us. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Story after story of Jesus, we marvel at his wisdom, at his insight, at his love, at his compassion, as his ability to explain what God is like to us because we can relate to him human to human and yet to our God as we recognize him as the God-man. In the first phrase of verse 14, when it says, the word became flesh, we mean by this that he took to himself humanity. In his deity, he humbled himself, veiling his glory, according to Philippians chapter 2, and added to his deity humanity. In the veiling of his glory, making himself of no reputation, he did not give up any of his attributes. It would be impossible for God to stop being God. He is the preexistent, self-existent one. He is the creator of all creation. He can't become what he is not. Why, God can't even lie because it's against his nature. And God could not have given up any of his attributes. But he veiled his glory so that as he added to his humanity, added to his deity humanity, as he became flesh, he made it possible for us to know God through a real human being to whom we can relate. He dwelt among us. He was so human, so real, that some people had a hard time imagining, could this really be God? He seems to be claiming that he's God, but how could he be God? He's obviously a man. One of my favorite stories is when the kids pile on his lap and the Disciples tried to hold him back, and they're thinking, like, this is inappropriate. And he says, no, no, let the kids come to me, because they are an example in their humility of how it is you gain relationship with God. You must humble yourself like a child in order to exercise faith and receive the gift that I offer of relationship with Jesus Christ. How beautiful it is that God came to dwell among us, the only begotten of the Father. That means the unique, one-of-a-kind person who has a unique relationship with the Father because he is God, come as the Son. He is full of grace and truth. We can see in him the glory, the unique splendor, that's the honor that is due him as God. And we can clearly hear the truth as he speaks it. Verse 16 says, for of his fullness, meaning that there is nothing missing in what we need to know of God or how to have relationship with God through the revelation of Jesus Christ, all of the deity dwells in Jesus Christ in bodily form. Of this fullness, we have all received and grace 
upon grace. It's speaking of one act of grace coming right after the previous act of grace, just like waves come upon the seashore, just wave after wave after wave. God wants to communicate to us that he approaches us exhibiting grace. What is grace? It's the goodness of God that does not want to punish us. It's the goodness of God that makes it possible for us to be saved in his grace, a gift that's undeserved. He allows us the opportunity to accept his gift of salvation if we would be willing to humble ourselves and receive his offer, believing that Jesus Christ is his son, our savior, and that when he died on the cross, he paid our penalty, our debt, taking our place, making it possible for God to extend us this gracious offer. Yes, the law given through Moses, according to verse 17, was powerful and helped us understand God's morality. But grace and truth together were revealed through Jesus Christ. It's not the old covenant any longer. It's the new covenant based on the balance of grace and truth. Think of the example in John 8 when the opponents of Jesus wanted to embarrass him in front of the crowd. They knew that if they placed before him a woman caught in the very act of adultery that the law commanded that she be put to death. But they had been lax in their exercise of that commandment. They had not been putting people to death regularly at all. And so they wondered, would he stand for what the law said? Or would he show to her such mercy that he would discredit his honesty? So they dragged this woman caught in the very act, and they said, what would you do with her? And he stooped down and drew in the ground. And he stood up and said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And they were convicted. And starting with the oldest among them, they began to walk away until no one was left. And he turned to the woman and said, is there no one who condemns you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. In that example, you see a beautiful expression of God's desire to forgive us if we will repent. He doesn't take delight in destroying us, although that's what we deserve. Because of his grace and truth, as it's revealed through the person of Jesus Christ, he wants, to understand, he wants us to understand the truth and the fact that we are separated from him and that we cannot save ourselves but he wants us to respond to the gift that he offers us. Sometimes in pride, people are too stubborn to accept any gift, and how much more so a gift offered by God. It's as if they say, I don't need it, I don't want it. Do with me as you wish. And yet what they are assigning themselves to is eternal separation from God forever. Why would anyone refuse such a gift. In God's essence as a spirit, he's invisible. We cannot see him. And that makes it more difficult for us to relate to him and to understand him. 
And so John writes in 1.18, though no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, that is the second person of the Trinity, the Son, who in time has been begotten as the physical human being, God-man, who is in the bosom of the Father, who is intimate in his relationship to the Father, he has explained him. If you were to transliterate this word, you would end up with our word exegesis. We use that term to refer to pulling out of the text of the Scripture what is there rather than reading into the Scripture our own ideas, which we'd call eisegesis. Exegesis is allowing the Scripture to speak for itself as we pull out the meaning as the author intended as he wrote it. How beautiful it is that he says, though we have never seen with our eyes the invisible God, his Son, who's become the God-man, he has personalized this revelation to us. He has explained him to us. We understand his nature. We can know him. We can have relationship with him because he is the one who is the image of the invisible God. He is God revealed to us. This has been his plan all along. This is how God wants us to know him. This is how God wants us to appreciate him. In John 14, verses 7 through 11, there's an interchange between Jesus and his disciples as he is getting ready to leave, and he's explaining to them that it's important for him to leave, and he will return and take them to be with him forever. John 14, 7 reads, If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus responded, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He does not mean by this that he is the Father. It's not as if it's a one-act play in which sometimes he appears as the Father and sometimes he appears as the Son. Take, for example, his baptism in which Jesus is down in the water and the Father in heaven booms with a voice, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descends on the Son as a dove. You can see all three members of the Trinity acting together. What he means when he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father, how can you say to me, show us the Father, is to say there's nothing in me that causes you a lack of understanding in the Father. He is God. I am God. You want to know the Father? You can know him through me. I am the Father, the Son, and the Spirit personalized in the second person of the Trinity become a man. I'm the God-man. You can know God through me. Believe me, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. We wonder, why would God go to such great lengths to humble his Son 
to cause him to become a man. Why wouldn't he have saved us in some other way? Paul reasons this way and suggests that had it been possible for us to keep the law, then that's how we would have been saved. And he said it wouldn't have been necessary for God to send his son if we could have kept the law, but not one of us can or ever will keep the law. And God is not truly satisfied with the Old Testament sacrificial system. The blood of bulls and goats, the blood of an unwilling animal is a poor substitute for the sacrifice that is required, which is our penalty, our individual deaths. And so in the most beautiful act I was about to say ever imagined, but we would never imagine such a thing. In the most beautiful act in the creation of God, he decided to make a personal sacrifice so that he would make it possible for himself in his righteousness to forgive us truthfully, righteously by having his son make the payment on our behalf. Turn from John 1 to Hebrews chapter 10 and see the explanation of the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice and not that of an animal in the place. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices, sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. In other words, you do you notice you have to keep repeating the sacrifices? Do you notice that they don't actually make you perfect before God? Verse 2, otherwise they would have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having been once cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. You see what he's saying? Don't you still feel guilty because you have a consciousness that your sin has not actually been atoned for? It's only been covered? Verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. And he straight out says it in verse 4. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what's the solution? How will we ever receive a freedom, a sense of cleanliness before God in which we say, I am justified, I'm declared righteous, I'm declared not guilty. How will that ever occur? It requires the second member of the Trinity to become Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come as a man. Verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come in the scroll of the book it's written of me to do your will, O God. Verse 8, after saying, Above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, 
quote, Behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For him to be the faithful high priest, he has to be one of us. We're not like angels that are independent creations of God. They don't marry. They don't have baby angels. We are a race. We're genetically tied to each other. We're all related together. We all share the same bloodline. Jesus joined us as a member of our race through Mary, his mother, protected from our sinfulness by the fact that the Holy Spirit came upon her. Jesus is the God-man, needed to be a man in order to identify with us, to take our place in the cross. He had to be a man in order to die. But the value of his death had to amount to more than just one man. Because a righteous man dying for one other person would be a one-for-one exchange. How would it be possible that God could forgive as many as would believe? Because he is not only a righteous man, he is the God-man, and the value of his death is infinite. He can die because he's human, but in the singular person that is the God-man. When he went to the cross, when we rejected him and sought to destroy him at the cross, God took that opportunity to pour out his wrath against our sins and make atonement once for all to make it possible for us to be forgiven. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And consequently, It was necessary for Jesus Christ to be the God-man in order to atone for our sins on the cross once for all. It was necessary for him to be truly human and to be truly divine, and that's exactly what we have in the revelation that he has been given to us. Why? Because God wants us to know him, to love him, to respond to him, and to serve him. God is not hiding from us. God is revealing himself to us. He has always revealed himself to us, even in creation and even in the conscience within us. But as we receive revelation from him in the scriptures as to the person of Jesus Christ, as we come to understand who Jesus Christ is, we come to understand the depths of his love and the wonderful offer that he has made. He has truly offered us a gift that is like grace upon grace upon grace and has upheld the measure of his truth and righteousness. Praise be to God for the gift of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we come before you thanking you for the love that you have shown us through the sacrifice of your Son. 
What an awful cost, and yet what a beautiful act. Thank you. Thank you for forgiving us through the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for making it clear to us. Thank you for helping us appreciate what you have done in Jesus Christ. May we therefore follow after your son. May we walk as he walked. May he be an example to us. And may we be your voices and your witnesses on this earth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.